Listener Production. Welcome to State Crime Command, the official podcast series of the New South Wales Police Force. I'm your host, Adam Shand. This series, Control, is brought to you by the Domestic and Family Violence Team. In 2020, there were 30 domestic violence-related homicides in New South Wales. 24 of these were intimate partner homicides. The New South Wales Police Force is reaching out through this podcast to those experiencing domestic violence. The message is this. Don't ignore the red flags in your relationship that indicate you may be getting involved with an abusive, controlling partner. The story we're sharing with you speaks to how the dynamic of domestic violence evolves in relationships and what it takes to finally break that hold. A warning, this podcast contains discussion and descriptions of physical, sexual and psychological violence and may not be suitable for listeners under 15 years. remember my first arrest, which was uh, when I was just a few weeks out of the police academy and getting called to a domestic violence incident. My name is Sean McDermott. I'm a chief inspector and I joined the force in 1996. I recall coming to a residence and finding a woman on the balcony waving to us. And it was nighttime and she had no clothing on. She had met her partner in town in front of a whole gamut of people. He had grabbed her by the hair, slammed her head into a telegraph pole from memory. She's bleeding. He brings her home, forces her into a shower to wash the blood off, and then throws her out in the balcony, basically to dry off, and as a way of further punishing her in his perspective. I suppose what stuck with me from that was his sense of entitlement, that he could do this and get away with it, and the absolute lack of remorse or empathy that he displayed when we apprehended him. The arrogance, can I say. At the same time, I remember seeing, you know, the actual absolute relief in the victim's face when she saw that we were coming to help her. So that sort of thing stays with me. Sean McDermott has spent a lot of his 25-year career in the police dealing with domestic violence. I'm manager of the Domestic and Family Violence team. I've been doing that for the last eight years, but saying that when I was in uniform back in the late 90s, I was the domestic violence liaison officer back then. And as a prosecutor for 12 years, uh, I'd say 50% of my workload would have been domestic violence. Domestic violence wasn't seen as a, a crime in itself. It was seen as family business or private business and police were somehow becoming involved in it. To now, I think we recognise, and we have been for some time, that domestic violence is a crime. The dynamic that actually powers domestic violence is quite simply control. We talk about control consistently when we talk about domestic violence, but we forget that the, the need and search for control is in fact largely driven by the offender's sense of inadequacy and insecurity. In March 2013, Cassie was 29 years of age, carefree and ready for adventure when she met an American man online. Yeah, I was the manager at a travel agency. I was actually, you know, for a little while I'd been considering moving overseas and living somewhere else in the world and I was turning 30 that year. So I was like, I need a change in my life. I was looking to move over to the States. I was deciding between Chicago and New York because I'd been to both places. I was 
loved both of them and couldn't decide where I'd want to move to. So with the agency that I worked for, we had opportunities in both states. So I was like, oh, I need to make a decision. And I just was in a business forum. So where you can meet people and make connections with work and stuff like that. So that's what it was. And that's where I started talking to I've called Cassie's new acquaintance, Connor, for legal reasons. He was an African-American living in the south side of Chicago where he worked in a meatpacking warehouse. He seemed smart and educated. He seemed like he'd had quite a bit of experience in life. So I found him quite interesting and I found his stories intriguing and it sucked me in and wanted to know more. He started to tell me about how, as a black American, how horrible life would be for him and how horrible it is for black people in America. And then he would start telling me about his childhood and his upbringing and those sort of things really sort of pulled at my heartstrings. He had an abusive mother. He didn't really know his dad. His mum was always on drugs and molested him and he was in and out of foster care and he said he was molested in foster care homes So he said it was a really horrible way of life. And then his mother was um, taken to prison when he was about 11 and he went and lived with his grandmother. So we're talking day and night, you know, it gets exciting in the beginning when you sort of, you think you're clicking with somebody and you think, oh, wow, this is like, what's going on? So I decided to book a ticket and fly over there and spend some time with him and actually see, you know, if whatever this was was real and or if there was anything more to it or if it's just, you know, all in your head sort of thing. It was amazing. So he, I arrived at night time and I got dropped off at his house and he was waiting outside and it was one of those things like out of a movie, like he picked me up out of the van and spun me around and it was this beautiful, you know, welcome and everything. And, you know, we went upstairs and it was all like just perfect. Like he'd cooked dinner and it was just, I wasn't even expecting it to be as great as it was, but it was just perfect for the three days that I was there. It was just all love and happiness. I came home after that. We, you know, kept in touch, obviously, all day, all night, every day, every night, talking, talking, talking. And I went back again a couple more times and for longer periods. And yeah, it just was decided. I was like, no, I'm head over heels in love with this guy. Um, I, I, I want to see this through. I want to see what we can do. I want to make this happen. Connor told Cassie about his dream of starting a family. What he didn't say was that he had a child with a former partner and that he'd served time in jail in the US for domestic violence offences in that relationship. Did anybody in your circle say, I'm not sure about this guy? They didn't, no one really ever spoke to him, so it was kind of just what I had to say, and obviously all I had to say was positive things because I was happy and I was the one telling the story of him, so they never really had to experience him. Every now and again we might do a video call when I was out with friends and stuff like that, and I realise now that was his way of checking who I was with and not so much, you know, for him to get to meet people. Right, a little flag of jealousy there very early on. Yeah, yeah, which I didn't realise back then at all. Mm. So I was actually, I turned 30 that year, and I had booked myself a eight-week trip around Europe for my 30th birthday. That was my present to myself, and I was away on that trip and obviously still talking to him. And then I remember being in Paris, and he was telling me how things are, have gotten bad and, you know, someone's after him and he needs to get out of their ASAP. And I started freaking out. I was like, "What? why is this person, who's after you? What do you mean? What's happening? And he said that he'd gotten shot at. And I was 
scared. So I was like, okay, no worries. So I flew in on like the Friday night or something and he came in and I had his flight arrive the Saturday morning so that he was coming to Australia. Cassie never found out why Connor had to leave the United States so urgently. In September 2013, the couple were living in Cassie's family home in Sydney. From the start of the whole relationship, there was a lot of secrecy. And as a parent, my advice for a parent who's going to go through this, ask a million questions. Ask, and that's what I feel I didn't do enough of. Cassie's father, Louis, just wanted his daughter to be happy, so he welcomed her new partner into their home, no questions asked. Had I asked a lot of questions as to how did this come about, how did you guys meet, that would have made maybe a difference of an understanding and assessing what he was actually like. So little things started happening. Like He knew I had a lot of friends and I had a busy social life, which I loved, and I wasn't expecting him to come to Australia right then, so I had all these things booked you know, plans made for when I returned from Europe. Obviously, I was going to bring him with me. And he started saying things like, you're just trying to put me on display. You're just trying to put me on show like I'm a trophy. You know, why why are you making me go to all these things? And I was really confused. And I was like, but, you know, I'd already told him all the things that were going on in my life. And I thought it would be nice for him to meet people so that he has his own network. But that's not how he made it. I met him at her parents' place. He came to stay with them. I probably would have met him for about 20 minutes. Corinna is Cassie's longtime friend. I ducked in to just welcome him and say hello and because Cassie had talked about him so well that we were all looking forward to him arriving. The first impressions were, you know, quite standard, seemed okay, and we got along okay It was at the second meeting where that intuition came in. Uh, We were at a party at a park and a barbecue and he had arrived and this was to meet the extended group. We would have been in the park for a couple of hours. The gathering was quite social, there's beers, everyone's chatting and what made him stand out in the crowd was that he wasn't participating. He was standing back not participating in the conversations. Cassie made the effort to introduce him to everybody that was there and yet he still didn't engage. And by the end of the barbecue, he was sort of standing to the side on his own and just watching us all instead of being part of the conversation. When did it start to escalate the problems you were having with him? They actually escalated before we got married, which is about six weeks after he moved here. And I think the the next big event was probably the one that really solidified that there was some sort of issue for me because, again, it was my wedding. We were attending one of my good friend's weddings and a person that I had dated 12 years prior was also at the wedding. Cassie's ex-boyfriend was at the wedding as well. And it was something, because she dated somebody in that large group of friends, it was inevitable. I had told Connor about my past, like in general my past, and he remembered this one ex of mine and saw him at the wedding and suddenly he got quite upset. With you? With me. She asked if she could sit on the other side of the room so that it didn't upset Connor. And... 
I took her away for a little while. There's always like a bridal room that you can go and take a break from being out with the crowd. And I had stolen her away and taken her into the back room to have a quick chat, just girly chat. You know, you had a couple of drinks. We were really enjoying ourselves. We had a few laughs and we were there for probably about a good 15, 20 minutes. And when I came back, he accused me of going off to have sex with my ex-boyfriend, which obviously didn't happen. So he made me leave the wedding. He said, you know, we had to go now because he wasn't going to tolerate that. For me to find out that my wedding and an action that I had taken innocently had caused the beginning of this was really, really upsetting. And then we were close to home and he made me stop the car and he got out. So I was like, what is he doing? He doesn't know where he is. He's been here six weeks. He doesn't know where he's going. I tried to follow him. And it was a good couple of hours. So I found him and I'd parked the car and I'd gotten out and I walked over to him and um, he was yelling at me and then he slapped me in the face really hard. And I was just, I've never been slapped before and I didn't even know that it could hurt so much. And I was shocked and I, like, I didn't know what to do and I just started to walk off. But as I walked off, he'd run up in front of me and grabbed me by the throat and started pushing me backwards. And he finally let me go. And then I just ran to my car and I jumped in and I've sat in the front seat and he's opened the door and with an open hand hit me twice in the face, directly in the front of the face. What happened next? I was a little frozen. He ended up just getting back in the car and he's like, let's go home. And I... I just did it. I just went home because I was like, I am in shock and I can't believe what's just happened. I don't even know what's just happened because I've never experienced this before. And the next day, everything, he was just normal. He was, you know, all apologetic. And he was like, you know, I've never done that before and I'm so sorry. I'm just, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. And I, you know, I, I didn't know his history. So I was like, okay, maybe he's telling the truth. I don't know. Did you tell anyone else? Not then, no. Why not? I still was processing what had happened. I couldn't, I was just shocked and I was like, have I really let someone in my life like this, you know? It's not even like I could just break up with him, like he's moved from another country to be here and I felt responsible for him on top of everything else. You know, a little bit of pride comes into it. You're like, you know, I'm not that kind of person. How could I let someone in my life do that to me? And, you know, you're a bit shameful. You feel a bit shameful because you're like, oh my gosh. Look, during this period of time, she was harder and harder to get in contact with. And normally we would have like chats over text messaging and, you know, most of them were nonsense. We were just having a laugh. But those conversations started to dwindle to a point where they didn't exist anymore. Then I started noticing it was more and more that I wasn't hearing from her. So I was trying to keep in contact with her, but there was silence at the other end. Despite the incident at Karina's wedding, Cassie and Connor made plans for their own marriage in November 2013, three months after Connor's arrival. Connor wasn't violent all the time, so Cassie tried to believe that the explosion of rage and violence after the wedding was out of character for Connor, or that somehow she'd been the one at fault. Well, he got a bit angry here and there, but nothing really happened again. So we'd had the celebrant marry us in late November, so about a month after that incident. And after that celebrant happened, things started to escalate quite quickly. 
that following week, I wanted to go for a run. And I said, I'm going to go for a run. And, and he started accusing me of cheating. And I was just baffled. I'm like, I'm with you 24-7. I don't know how you could think that I'm going to cheat, like I'm going to exercise. And he had grabbed my arm and twisted it behind my back to the point I could feel it like it was breaking and I was in pain and he wouldn't let me go and he ripped me up by my hair and actually ripped chunks of hair out of the top of my head pulling me up and um, he finally let me go and then he was just looking at me like well too bad it's just it's happened now so now you're missing hair so you'll be right Mm. he didn't really care did he seek forgiveness again? Yeah, it started becoming a cycle where he'd do that and he'd say, oh, I didn't really... But he'd go, sometimes he would sort of make a joke out of things, you know, like laugh or like, oh, look at what I did. Oh, I can't believe I did. I didn't even mean that. And I'm like shocked and I'm just like, how are you even laughing about what you've just done to me? Many of these assaults were happening in Cassie's family home, but she hid the abuse from her parents. Her father, Louis. Whatever was happening behind closed doors, I didn't know. I wish I did, but I didn't know. And the pain she must have been tortured under under our roof, she was very secretive about it. She was hiding it, hiding it terribly well. My other two daughters, I believe, felt something or heard something and they were reaching out to their mum a bit about it. I, at that time, was working six days a week and I think that they didn't treat it with the full context of it. And when it did come out to some sort of situation, I got really upset and I actually kicked him out of the house. Uh, And I asked him to leave two or three times, actually. The amount of mayhem he brought into my home was just very disturbing. Louis had to be careful. He was faced with losing contact with his daughter. She said, well, if he goes that, I've got to go because he's got nowhere to go. I said, well, he's not going to bring all this rubbish into my home and you guys aren't telling me anything. So after that other incident, he had broken my nose just not long after. Maybe a couple of weeks after ripping the hair out of my head, he broke my nose because I was a few minutes late home from work. He urinated on me in the shower, choked me. And then when I got out of the shower, he punched me in the face because I wanted to ask if I was allowed to get dressed. And then I fell pregnant around then. And around the Christmas time, sort of just before the New Year, just after, he'd, I'd taken time off work, obviously, because he was there. And I didn't want his first Christmas to be alone, so I'd pre-planned to have that time off. And one day he asked me to drive somewhere isolated And I was trying to find out why. And he was just like, let's just go, let's just go. So I I went to the only place that I was, because I didn't know any isolated places. It's not something I did. So I had to think. And I ended up going to Warragamba Dam because I was like, "I, I know where that is and that's all I can think of. So I went. And so at this point, I was pregnant. We just didn't know yet. And he made me park somewhere and then he's like, all right, let's get out. So we walked and it was just like a dead end and it was a rock wall and some rocks and then into the water. And I remember hearing kids playing in the background and I was like, oh my gosh, what is going to happen right now? And he says to me, how do you want to die? I was like, what? 
He's like, well, how do you want to die? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, do you want me to bash your head into a rock or do you want me to drown you? And already by this point, I'd had enough and I just said, I don't care. I was like, do whatever you want. I just didn't want to be a part of him anymore. I didn't want to, I didn't know how to leave him, and I, but I didn't want to stay. You were locked in and now, shortly after that, mm. you discover you're pregnant. Yeah, a few weeks later. The violence paused for a while after Cassie found out she was pregnant. Connor had asked Cassie to forgive him for his brutality. He'd never loved anyone enough to hit them before, he claimed, as if abuse could ever be an expression of love. In any case, his criminal record suggested otherwise. Connor needed to get his residency approved and was pressuring Cassie to get the paperwork done. A criminal history check from the US was needed. In August 2014, the FBI sent Connor's record, and it was extensive. Nine charges going back to 2003, mostly for domestic battery and violation of protection orders. The latest was in February 2012, a year before he met Cassie. He'd received a 12-month supervision order, which expired in March 2013 when his Australian connection began. Connor had a story for every charge, mostly that he was a victim of racism. He did concede that he had a daughter back home. Cassie's family knew none of this. So things had settled down a little bit because I think, you know, he, he was a parent. At that time, we didn't know that he, was, he already had a daughter in America, but to us, it was like he's our first grandson, our grandchild, and Cassie seemed to be a lot more content and happy, and so things may have been trying to work themselves out. And because they were taking photos in the, like in the hospital with Cassie's grandmother, and they were really good photos... A baby boy was welcomed into the family in October 2014. Yeah, so it wasn't as brutal through the pregnancy. It still existed, but it was, I mean, he went to punch me in the face while I was in labour because I was annoying him because I was in pain. That's the kind of, you know, and I was just thankful that, you know, a nurse had happened to walk in just before he punched me in the face and that's why he didn't. And then just after my son was born, things did get back to being brutal. He didn't care. Had you at any point in this period thought I should call the police? Yeah, I would tell him I was going to call the police and he would just make me feel extremely guilty saying family don't do that to each other. No one in my family is like, do you know how much my family is like this? Not once would a family member call the police. You don't do that in a family. You don't do that. And I would feel conflicted because I'm like, my family's not like this. This is not. If anyone in my family did this, they would 100% call the police. He was very manipulating, extremely manipulating. In his words, in his talk. Everyone in Cassie's family was trying to help Connor, even as he was abusing her. A family investment property was sold to allow Cassie to set up home with her new husband. Cassie got her uh, quarter share and she was able to put all those funds towards a home. The mistake she made, of course, was put his name on the title deed, but she put up all the money because it came from this profit investment that they made. So, you know, I said to her, I was so cautious, Cassie, make sure it's just in your name because it's your money and you've got to tie it up somewhere. Anyway, she didn't. Made up a story that the bank wanted his name on the deed as well or whatever, but I believe he was more manipulating. Um, his point was that he was coming out to Australia for money and then to go back home with money. That was his ultimate plan, I believe. 
Now in May 2015, away from Cassie's family, Connor had his wife under his complete dominance. For months she endured violence, obsessive control and the increasing severity of his threats. But then on 23rd of July 2015, you did make a report. Why on that day did you change your mind and do it? By that point I'd been held at knife point a couple of times and I had bought a house and we were living on our own and things just got worse and I was just absolutely terrified by this point. And for that week leading up to that day, he was constantly saying to me, I would happily go to prison for killing you because I'd have the memory of breaking your neck to keep me company. And he was waking up in his sleep to make sure that I knew this. So I did not sleep that week and I was just terrified the whole time. So I told a couple of my girlfriends, I I need to go. And they turned up at my house that day and they helped me pack up. So the three cars we loaded up, my son and everything, anything we could fit in those cars, and we went straight to the police station. How did that feel when you were away from that threat? I was still, I was probably more terrified. My fear and anxiety and guilt um, was extreme. I'd never felt the guilt was probably the the most painful thing I'd ever experienced in my life. The guilt? What guilt? Why? It's it's really hard to explain as much as you know, you know what's happening is not okay. <clears throat> his what he'd, you know, his I felt responsible for him. I felt like I, you know, he would tell me how no one's ever loved him and no one's ever made him feel loved and no one's ever looked after him properly and then you sort of you want to take that on, you want to look after him, you want to love him and you want to show him that people aren't all bad and then you feel like, you know, because you're so manipulated and you don't even realise it, you feel so bad then you feel like, oh, I'm letting him down. What am I doing? I'm letting him down. I promised him I would look after him and I just can't anymore. You give a statement? Did you you say everything? Did you tell everything that had happened? No, I wasn't able to. So they had only taken the first couple of months and maybe the last couple of months of abuse. By this point, it was one in the morning before I left the police station. So there was a lot of in-between that wasn't able to be said that night. Connor refused to be interviewed and so was located and charged with assault occasioning actual bodily harm, common assault and intimidation. Police took out an ADVO, and apprehended domestic violence order against him, and he was later released on bail. Even after all this abuse, Connor's criminality, as far as the police knew, was limited to just a few months at either end of the relationship. Cassie wasn't able to detail his sexual violence against her at all. It was not her fault. Things were happening very quickly. However, this partial telling of the story would limit the effectiveness of any police intervention as Cassie tried to break Connor's grip over her. Police had taken out an ADVO against Connor, but Cassie did not feel safe, despite there being bail conditions and an order. Well, I moved back to my parents' house, but even though when I moved to my parents' place, which was a distance away from him, he would still turn up at my house. He would still contact me. He would still threaten me. And I would try to ring to say he's breached the AVO, but a lot of the times they weren't quite sure if I was actually in danger or I wasn't ringing the right department or the right area. So it didn't, it didn't help. So my fear of ignoring him outweighed my fear of listening to him. So I was, it, it felt safer to listen to him and go to him and listen to him rather than 
stay put. On September 1st, 2015, a month after the ADVO was granted, Cassie let herself into the family home that she'd previously left because of the violence. She still had a key. She saw him on the stairs and feared she may be assaulted. The standoff was broken when her child pressed a pre-saved number on the phone by accident and the number was for her good friend. The friend recognised Connor's voice in the background and thought Cassie may be in danger, so she called police. When officers arrived, Connor denied that Cassie was in the house, despite her car being located outside. Police heard a female voice from within the house and located Cassie inside. Connor was immediately placed under arrest for a breach of the ADVO. Cassie provided a three-page statement detailing all the times when Connor had breached the ADVO. Victims of domestic violence may return to the family home due to a number of understandable reasons, including wishing to prevent further violence by agreeing to speak with offenders. In this case, Cassie felt it was safer to have a face-to-face conversation with Connor than living with the uncertainty of not knowing when and where he would approach her. I currently work as a a member of the Domestic Violence Death Review Team here in New South Wales and unfortunately it is a relatively frequent observation that we make which is we see court processes being disengaged from or matters not being successful at court for a variety of reasons and that could be either the prosecution could not prove its case or we had an issue with a victim turning legally unfavourable or we had a victim that failed to attend court to give evidence. In those scenarios, we have seen matters that ultimately ended in a homicide. Cassie knew she was at risk. She could see no choice but to remain in contact with her abuser, even though he'd made frequent threats against her life. I didn't know if his threats were just threats or if he was going to follow through, because he did follow through in the end. What did he do? He took my son from me. In episode two of Control, Cassie could see the end of her nightmare relationship with Connor. But for another woman, the cycle of violence and control was just about to begin. State Crime Command is produced in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force and Real Crime Australia. Written and produced by Adam Shan. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolic. The associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. Listener.